This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your regular podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. This week we'll shed light on the discoveries that have been made during English Heritage's five-year project to uncover the early medieval story of Tintagel Castle in Cornwall. We'll find out why it was started, what has happened over the last five years, the key discoveries, and what all of this teaches us about the history of Tintagel long before the castle was built here. Joining us to reveal Tintagel's secrets are Properties Curator for the West, Wynne Scutt, and Lead Archaeologist, Jackie Novakovsky. Hello, Charles. Let's start with Wynne first, and before we get into the actual dig, could you explain a bit more about Tintagel Castle as we see it as a visitor or member today? Well, it's a beautiful site to start with. I mean, it's it's sort of lost on the remote coast of North Cornwall, and a major part of it sticks out of the sea. We often call it the island, but actually it's a peninsula where the sea has actually eroded the land bridge out to it. Almost, and we've recently constructed a bridge to join up the site. Visitors, when they get there, actually see these quite large ruins of a medieval castle. And of course, lots of people think, ah, that's King Arthur's castle. But actually, it was built by Richard, who was Earl of Cornwall in the uh, 13th century. And he was a very rich man and a very powerful man and had castles everywhere. And he chose to build one here probably because of the Arthurian legend, we think because he wanted to associate himself with that. So really, it's not a defensive castle at all. It's more of a a folly, if you like, with a a sort of a a feasting hall, a place where he could entertain his guests and and talk about his own ancestry and his connections with Cornwall and his connections with King Arthur. But the ruins, although very much degraded, are really quite magnificent because of the way they're perched on the cliffs there. It's an extraordinary sight. And quite exposed, I suppose, from a, from a weather front, uh, no pun intended, um, and great views. <laughs> oh, it's absolutely beautiful. I mean, the weather changes so much there. You can have a sunny day when people are going down to the beach, or you can have a, a wild, windy day we can, when you can hardly stand up on the island, as I refer to it. The headland is a better word. And you can often watch seals in the harbour, and uh, it's just so dramatic. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. And I think that's one of the attractions to the 13th century medieval builders, that they wanted something that was kind of romantic as well. So uh, he certainly, when Richard built it, he must have been aware of the ruins of buildings across the island. I mean, he didn't know how old they were, but probably local legends said they were Arthur. And they stole the stone to help make his castle. So he must have been aware of the more ancient site. And now when visitors go to see it, it is actually quite difficult to convey the importance of the earlier site. So Richard's site is, what, 700, 800 years old. And uh, the site that Jackie and I have been excavating is actually another few hundred years before that. So it was already a very ancient site. Yes, that was going to be so my next question, really. So we're going back to the 5th century. Yes. So going back to the 5th century, that's a pretty remarkable layer of history to uncover, which really hasn't really been dealt with, I I presume. And it was a five-year project, so I guess you've had a lot of layers to sort of dig through, really. What are the fundamental questions that you were hoping to answer when you started, and when did you start? Well, the main reason that that, um, we had 
to dig was to try to understand more about what the older site looked like, mainly to interpret it to our visitors. And we didn't know what all these, although you can see these ruins of rectangular buildings, and in fact archaeology has detected about a hundred of them across the headland, we didn't know what they looked like. So one of the prime aims was to try to understand the architecture of these buildings, but also the dating, because although we've got lots of pottery from the island, that dates as early as the 5th century, and some even a little bit earlier, we didn't know when the, really when these buildings dated to, because when Radford excavated them back in the 1930s, and then again the 1990s, we hadn't got specific dates to pin these buildings down. So dating them and understanding the sequence was really important, and making sure that they belonged not to the later castle, you know, they weren't builders' houses or something, that they really were early medieval buildings, you know, what we used to call the Dark Ages. Yes. Um, what kind of year are we talking about here then, Jackie? Well, I think Wynne has very cogently talked about the um, early archaeology at Tintagel because when you look at a place like Tintagel, which is a very complicated site, you've got all these layers. You've got historical, mythological and archaeological. And our archaeological project is really digging down, trying to get a clearer understanding of, as Wynne says, the early settlement, which was first appraised in the 1930s by Raleigh Radford, who took on the task of trying to sort of unravel and understand a lot of stone ruined buildings, small rectangular cells on various parts of the headland. And Radford's work is really very fundamental to the way that shaped sort of a more recent research and certainly our project. What are these buildings? What kind of settlement are we looking at? And also, what is the significance of this huge amount of exotic material that's appearing in Britain at this critical period, the 5th century? So Tintagel has given us lots of sort of questions as archaeologists to try to attempt to answer. But it's a very complicated site. So um, the work that we've done recently is all building up upon a picture of interpretation where we're trying to understand the significance of the buildings, the extent of the settlement, and also what type of settlement we're looking at, particularly during the 5th and 6th centuries. So you're piecing together clues from your predecessors, really, in order to inform your current yeah, studies. Absolutely. We're building up upon a sort of an earlier narrative, an earlier story, and we're trying to add to that, as well as bring, obviously, more modern scientific techniques to look at the data, to look at the layers, to look at the pottery, and to do a very sort of intensive and quite forensic study, both of the buildings, the material, the objects that we're finding, and trying to find out more about the complexities of um, the connectivity which seems to be going on between, as Wynne says, this remote part of the Southwest Peninsula with the distant world, the distant world of the Eastern and Western Mediterranean, which is principally what a lot of the exotic imported wares and bits of glass that we found seem to indicate. Yes, we'll get onto that in just a tick. That's um, a very tantalising aspect of the whole thing. But just going back to the 1930s and this uh, chap called Bradford, who was investigating and doing archaeology there, could you tell us what he and his team discovered? Well, Tintagel, obviously, as Wynne said, um, has become attractive, certainly since the, sort of the earlier 20th century. And people were visiting, wanted to visit this place in the remote part of uh, North Cornwall. More and more people wanted to go and see the ruins on this headland. So the site is actually owned by the Duchy of Cornwall, but it went into sort of management of the state and the Ministry of Works in the late 1920s and 30s. 
And as part of this business of opening up the site and making it accessible to visitors, a programme of archaeological work, which is really about consolidating the stone walls of these ancient buildings and removing the rubble that collapsed within them and un unravelling and revealing the interior floor surfaces to find out more about how old these buildings were and what kind of date. And Radford's work was all about excavating on various parts of the headland where obvious ruins were. And that's really the importance of the foundation work that has projected work going on till recently. And can we see the evidence of his work underfoot today? You can. So when, the, when you visit Tintagel, you'll, you'll go through the sort of the inner ward, you'll go through the Great Hall, through the curtain wall, into, and you go into a sort of another part of the space of Tintagel, which is this incredible rocky promontory. And you'll see, certainly on the eastern side facing Tintagel Haven, you'll see the remains of low stone walls of clusters of single-roomed buildings, which were the focus principally of the early 1930s excavations and also on the top you'll see a consolidated chapel site and you'll see some other buildings clustered around that earlier building so you'll see the, the outlines of quite a complicated set of clusters of stone buildings. So you can see the work that Radford has done, but there's far more to Tintagel that meets the eye. And this came into focus really in the sort of the early part of the 1980s, when there was a fire on the headland. Oh, right. And that fire removed a lot of the surface, very thin maritime grass, and a whole complexity of new outlines of new buildings, new earthworks was revealed. It was quite extraordinary and it's completely radically changed our ideas about the extent of the archaeology on the whole of this sort of six hectare site. As Wynne said earlier, you've got up to 60 to 80 new buildings which Radford wouldn't have been aware of covering the entire headland and is, that, that is hmm. quite remarkable. Is that as a result of that grass fire then? That is, that is. Wow. And there was a very detailed survey that was done by the Royal Commission in the 1980s. And that has really radically transformed the way that we look at Tintagel as a settlement. The question being, you know, are all these possible buildings, are they contemporary? What do they represent? This is far more than the sort of small scale nature of the early settlement that Radford looked at at the 1930s, mm. which incidentally he interpreted as, a, as the buildings of a monastic community. That's an interesting yeah. point. <laughs> at, at, at that time, of course, medieval archaeology hadn't really come of age. I mean, proper excavation of medieval sites didn't really start till the 1970s. So Radford was a pioneer, but in many ways it was clearance of these buildings rather than careful excavation with a trowel. I think they were using spades and shovels and pickaxes mm. to empty the spaces, really to display it and obviously to keep all the pottery. But we don't yes. really know that much because unfortunately all of Radford's records were destroyed in the Blitz uh, when Exeter was hit by the Luftwaffe. Well, that's that's really terrible circumstances there, really, for, for you guys doing your work as archaeologists. You, you need that previous research in order to inform what you're going to do next. Uh, how did you decide what you were going to do next? Yes, well, as Wynne said, a lot of the sort of the physical records in terms of the photographs and plans, not all of them, but some, most of them were available. But the material archive, all the finds were available. So they've been sitting in various museums <laughs> over the last 80 years. And the late Professor Charles Thomas championed the re-look at Tintagel in the 1990s. And he brought together all that material and started to get 
early medieval archaeologists to look again at the nature of this sort of um, the implications of all this extraordinary imported material. And so there was some work done by the University of Glasgow, some new research done on some of the areas that Radford excavated. That work was done, directed by Chris Morris in the 1990s, where they looked again at some of the sites, a particular site called Site C that you can see today. And they looked at the nature of the buildings on the terrace and they found that there's far more of a story there. There's far more complexity in terms of layers. So you do have terraces, artificial terraces, upon which several phases or several types of buildings have been built. And Mm. um, importantly, that work has also informed the work that we've been doing recently too, because it has helped us shape up a research project where we know how important it is to really investigate the construction of these terraces and to look at the types of buildings and the archaeology that our excavations can reveal. So despite the bad luck and good luck of your forebears, really, and of, you had a, a good springboard from which to work from. Yeah, I, I think that really it's those two things, the fire that exposed this large collection of uh, structures, these buildings that may or may not be contemporary, but they do stretch right across the island. They're right across the plateau, the flat top of the island, or headland. But as Jackie says, they're also on these terraces down the sides. So the sides of the island are stepped, but deliberately stepped in many cases. So we had about, in total, about 100 houses now, which makes it the biggest settlement in the whole of Britain of this period. It's bigger than London. Wow. And the pottery that uh, Radford had excavated... When you put it all together and look at how much is coming from the Mediterranean, you find that we've got more pottery at Tintagel from the Mediterranean than all the other sites in Britain combined. So those two figures are extraordinary, bigger than London and massive amounts of Mediterranean pottery. And it really raised big question marks about the site. You know, what on earth is this place? Well, again, another tantalising point, and that is really interesting. We'll we'll dig into that in a bit more detail shortly. But um, tell us then where you excavated as part of your latest project. Well, we worked from 2016. We carried out two phases of excavation. And the first phase really was to pick two locations on the headland, which we knew there had been no earlier excavations. We wanted to test the results of this 1980s survey. So we picked an area called the Upper Eastern Terrace, which Mm -hmm. is on the eastern headland, just above where the custodian's hut is today. Everyone's getting their Um, maps out now, trying to work out which Yes, and then we we picked another area, which we called the Southern Terrace, which is facing the mainland and up coast, very, very exposed. So in 2016, what we did is we carried out some geophysical surveys, a magnetometer and um, electrical skeptability, um, a resistance survey. And um, we used the results, scanning, yes, we (laughs) used the results of those surveys to try to ground truth what the Ordnance Survey had captured in their detailed data. And um, both of those geophysical surveys did indicate that we had areas which had been disturbed and therefore settlement. And Mm. so um, so we carried out our evaluation and on the basis of carrying out slot trenches through several earthworks on both locations, we decided in the second year to carry out a much longer excavation over five weeks where we opened up a much larger area on the Southern Terrace. And it's on this Southern Terrace, which is one of the sort of the flattest bits apart from the summit, It's backed by a very steep cliff, which has partly been quarried for stone. 
But there is this sort of flat terrace where there was a complex of six earthworks arranged around a terrace, which is about 85 metres by 25 metres in extent. And over a period of um, five weeks in 2017, we opened up a, what we call a large trench, an open air mm-hmm. excavation, to investigate at least three areas which were part of what we considered to be a suite of buildings as mapped by the Ordnance Survey. You've got to remember, this is not an easy place to excavate. It's very exposed. It's very tough. And uh, even opening up a large excavation area, which we did, it was over 280 metres square in terms of trench. Right. Um, we unravelled so much that five weeks wasn't really enough to excavate it all. I'm now getting yes, a sense of how big this project was. <laughs> well, I think it's important to realise that nowadays it's unlike what Radford did. Nowadays, you're actually surgically deconstructing a whole mass of what we call contexts little layers and pockets of material, if you like, and features. It's incredibly complicated. Remind me, Jackie, how many contexts you had within that one excavation. Well, okay. I mean, I think the important thing is, is that um, what, as we said earlier, is that many of the buildings around this very, very rocky headland are actually constructed upon what we call soft ground. So the terraces that you see have been artificially created. And what that means is that you've got, well, thousands of contexts, really, in terms of archaeological um, recording layers. What we found on the Southern Terrace, we found incredibly the intact remains of buildings which have not been seen for over a thousand years. As I said earlier, it's, it, there's more to Tintagel than, than meets the eye in terms of what has survived. That's and part remarkable. of that survival has been due to the fact that from about the 17th century, the whole of the headland has been re- relatively inaccessible, which means that anything there that's pre-17th century is going to be pretty well preserved. In terms of depth of archaeology on the southern terrace, we are talking about a considerable depth. So from the top part of the terrace where we found a substantial rectangular building with an annex, right down to the edge of the terrace where we found a substantial wall, the volume of material is quite considerable with over 1.5 or up to 2 metres of stone, soil, collapsed and infill deposits. So we've really (laughs) tantalisingly excavated revealed in plan quite a large area but excavated in terms of depth quite a small percentage largely because it's a very very rich site yes very deep and thorough and meticulous all at the same well, time it's meticulous That's... yes because you have to excavate with a trowel every single layer identify it describe it record it in three dimensions record all the pottery and all the finds that comes from it and this creates this incredibly complex layer cake it's mm. like a marble cake yeah. of thousands of little layers and then that gives you the sequence that is the data that you can work on and actually the project is 5 years and the excavation was only five weeks. But that five weeks generates so much data that you then take four and a half years to process it. And that's what the specialist team from Britain and beyond have been working on. 
So it's really tip of the iceberg stuff. You know, it, you do a tiny excavation using modern scientific methods and you collect pollen, you collect bone remains, you collect all that in, environmental stuff as well as the artifacts. You map the structure of the, of the whole thing. Incredibly complicated. And then you digest it for the subsequent years. It's a massive piece of scientific research. Yes, I was going to say um, how long you were actually working on site for over this five-year period, but you've answered my question by saying five weeks <laughs> out of five years now. Um, so obviously I was, I was imagining maybe this seasonal thing where you come back every year, but obviously that didn't happen. It was just a, a five-week well, period. Well, I mean, we you had the couple of weeks in 2016 as well, as plus the pre-field works, mm. geophysical surveys. So it's a bit longer in terms of field work, but Wynne's absolutely right. We've uncovered so much in the way of data in terms of, new knowledge about the buildings, new knowledge about the site economy, the wider landscape, the dating, which is so important, that there's a whole team of specialists as part of our research project working in different areas mm. and are processing all that data for us. Could you give us some figures of how many people actually worked on this whole project across the various teams? There were about nine of us who are all professional field archaeologists. And over the period of the excavations, we had up to about 40 volunteers a week on a daily basis. And uh, a lot of those people were fairly experienced at digging because it is a very complicated site. So they would be supervised by the professional archaeologists. So, but they were physically lugging all this material around, revealing all the stone buildings and the huge amount of slate and stone that had to be removed in order to reveal the outlines and the footprints of these buildings and reveal our understanding of the depth and the complexities of the archaeology of the Southern Terrace. And although they're volunteers, they're, of course, very experienced, many of them. I mean, That's you, right, you, yeah. for such a complicated site, you need people with a lot of experience about how to trowel and all the rest of it, you know, how to record. Um, yeah, you were very lucky in having a fantastic team, even as far as Canada they came, didn't they? Wow. <laughs> they, they did. It was an international team. We had, yeah, somebody from Canada and somebody from America. And, um, and we also had people who brought their own skills, um, skills that we didn't necessarily have. What we did is we created a photogrammatic image of the entire excavation. And, and we've got that today, which is quite a unique record which means that we've got a digital 3D model of the excavation, the, te the buildings, and you can walk around it. And um, one of our team who was a video gamer, and he did all that work for us and has stitched together all the photographs he's taken. And that is a fantastic record because it allows us to visit the, it allows me, it allows my team, the specialist team, to visit the site again in a very close encounter detail, almost like a sort of a VR experience. Yes, that's yes, fantastic. We should, we should name check him, Matt Clark, actually. Yes. Oh, yes. And, of course, <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> and and um, it is wonderful. So even if you don't travel around the 3D model on your computer, you can actually just put that 3D model on your screen and you can rotate it and, uh, you know, shift it around and, and have a look at all the different com complex parts where all the walls are, the ditches and, and all that sort of thing. Great fun. Yeah. Yes, I think I think one of the key things it's it's so exciting because the whole terrace is so um, spatially dramatic. So you've got at least three buildings of massive stone masonry walls bonded with a sort of clay mortar. So this, these are early buildings. These are buildings which are pre Earl Richard's 13th century castle. 
And the walls, which stand up to just less than a metre high, gives us a real sense of the space that people are constructing on and the, the way that they'd be moving around the site as well. So all those elements really do give you a very kind of tangible, visceral experience. And again, just to remind you, you know, this is a very sort of tantalising glimpse into a very small part of Tintagel Headlands. So really, our our work has really given us a real sort of tantalising flavour of how extraordinary this place is. There's nothing ordinary about Tintagel, I tell people. There's so many deep mysteries to further uncover there really. As well as the metre high walls, some of them were up to a metre thick these walls and the location is absolutely extraordinary. We don't allow people to walk out on that particular bit there because it's a really steep slope. Mm. So they're building these buildings in almost the far reaches of the island in a sense. I mean maybe they were doing it for shelter on the terraces but it looks like we've got a fairly dense population at some stage on the island it isn't just one group of houses that's being rebuilt all over the place it's uh, at some point most of those uh, buildings must have been occupied I suspect anyway and so they're living sort of on the edge on this southern terrace in fact it'd be quite easy to roll down a very long slope and, and fall into the sea it's that dramatic a location and, and, and we also know just to say that historically early travelers coming to Tintagel early topographers to Cornwall. Some of them have left descriptions and some of them have left quite dramatic um, diagrams. There's one particular one by John Norden in the sort of early part of the 17th century who depicts the headland and he shows some of the ruined buildings that he can see standing on the mainland looking out towards the headland. By this time, the narrow neck of land between the mainland and the headland has disappeared. So it's, it's a real scramble to get up there. One of the things he says, because he labels uh, various parts of the headland, he says that um, this particular point where we're excavating on the southern terrace, he labels it as buildings falling into the sea. So even beyond down on the even more steep parts of that side of the headland, it's probable that there are far more buildings that have been buried by just general movement, the scree, mm. the erosion. So yes, I mean, it's quite an extraordinary place, as Wynne says, and it's unparalleled when we think about this period in Britain. Well, everyone's dying to know what exactly was <laughs> discovered. So can you <laughs> tell us what you picked out as some of your highlight discoveries? I think the key thing is that we've got intact buildings, but the one of the most exciting discoveries was the, was the fact that we had an... In, the platform of these buildings rests upon a very rich series of what we call midden deposits or rubbish deposits. And it's in these compacted material that we found all the finds. We found over 2,000 sherds of imported pottery, principally storage vessels called amphora, mm-hmm. uh, which would have contained things like wine and olive oil coming from the Mediterranean world, but also large pieces of fine dishes for tableware, which is also being imported. Remarkably, the thin slivers of highly decorative pieces of glass, which are bits of drinking bowls and vessels, which, are, which is also coming into Britain at this time remarkably quite unique for Britain from the Mediterranean world. Not so much in the way of native wares or early medieval pottery. So a lot of rich material, what we would call high status ware, coming in during a a period of the mid-fifth century. And these middens have also produced animal bone, well-preserved animal bone, where we can identify 
the types of animals that were being consumed and eaten during this period. Pig seems to be a particularly high in terms of the list of animals. There's both domesticated animals, cattle and sheep, and horse as well within these middens. So you're getting quite a good picture then of perhaps how life was lived there during from the 5th century onwards in that middle period which we previously didn't know much about. Yes, and one of the things that I love about the the bone evidence is that by analysing the range of bones from different domestic animals that you get, you can tell whether just meat is being brought onto the island or whether they're bringing live animals and butchering them on site. And in fact, we find trotters and cloven (laughs) hooves and all the rest of it and all the bits of the animal, which tells us that they're actually bringing the animals onto the uh, the headland mm. and slaughtering there and butchering them there. So you start to build up a picture of slaughterhouses, butchers and all that sort of thing. You know, it's a real community, although we're still trying to understand the social structure of the community. I mean, most of these buildings seem to be roughly the same size. It may have been lost, but we don't find a sort of central building where the boss lives or whatever. Is this an egalitarian community? A bit like Radford was suggesting as a a monastic settlement, but we don't think it's monastic, but we do know that there's a lot of elite stuff going on. This, This is an elite community who are drinking wine, bringing stuff from the Mediterranean. They're drinking things out of beautiful glass vessels. This is very prestigious stuff. This isn't just an ordinary village. It's something right up at the top of the hierarchy of settlement, in at least in southwestern Britain, perhaps the whole of Britain. I mean, Wynne has just touched on there a very important thing, is that the people who are here in the 5th and 6th centuries are bringing in stuff from the wider hinterland around Tintagel. They're not farming on the headland, but they're actually bringing in both the animals quite young and slaughtered probably on site because the character of some of the bone assemblages, we can see that the bones have been butchered by iron knives and it's very fresh. The material is actually very fresh. That's the other thing is that when we look at the composition of the middens and we look for material, organic material, which we can scientifically date because radiocarbon has been a very important tool radiocarbon dating in our project, we're able to provide really quite accurate dates within decades in the 5th century for the formation of these middens. And the other thing in relation to economy is that we've also found the remains of ancient cereals within these middens with both naked and hulled barley and spelt types of grains, ancient grains, which are seem to be quite a high percentage within the sort of the early midden deposits. But equally, we've got some sprouted grains as well, which suggests that not only are people bringing on these things for consumption, but they may, may well be making beverages like malting, for beer or for making even mead for consumption as well. That's and remarkable. Um, before I forget, <laughs> one of the other unique things is that we've also got some burnt seaweed from the middens, and that's pretty unusual. So we're sort of scratching our heads about this, but it looks as though it's possible that the seaweed is being deliberately burnt to make something called black salt, right. which may have been used to actually use as a food preservative. So not only are people sort of not bringing in from the wider landscape things to consume at feasting events, all this kind of conspicuous consumption, 
It could be that food is being brought from some distance away. This is something we're still sort of looking at in our in terms of our analysis. So maybe you need to sort of rename it Northmouth or something, because um, you know, as opposed to a Portsmouth <laughs> or a or, or a Southampton or, or Bournemouth or something, it's it's on the north yeah. coast, which is interesting. It, you know, obviously there's, there's some sort of trading going on there. Well. Absolutely. And I think, you know, its coastal location is, is just key to why Tintagel is, why it, it is Tintagel, because it's in a position to dominate the sort of Bristol Channel, to connect with the sort of the wider, what we call the wider Atlantic zone, because these exotic things arriving, arriving from the Mediterranean, we presume by boat rather than across land across Europe. So we're looking at sort of levels of maritime exchange and connectivity, which are very complicated. So we've got one of our specialists, Maria Duggan, has been looking at the origins of the productions of the amphorocytes, i.e. looking at the clay through the petrology. We've been able to show that the commonest types of amphora, these um, storage vessels containing wine and olive oil, are coming from areas in the eastern Aegean and also the Peloponnese as well. And also we have some from southern Spain. So it looks as though boats are arriving at Tintagel with bits of things that are coming from different parts of the Mediterranean basin. And also material coming, the glassware, for example, the drinking glasses, we think are being produced in the sort of southern southwest part of France in the Bordeaux area. Or equally, maybe perhaps in northeast, uh, northwest northwest Spain, sorry, in Galicia at a place called Vigo, which is a major trading emporium at, at this time. Mm. One of the fascinating things about the glass is that we have had some analysis done on this very fine glass, is that the glass is actually made of a product called natron, which is a very uh, sodium-rich salt found in Egypt, in the dried up bed lakes of, of Egypt made into chunks on an industrial scale and chunks of raw material and then shipped to other areas in in Europe to be made into objects so it's um, so all that sort of all the implications of that is quite extraordinary in terms of understanding the connectivity and then realizing that a lot of this material is connecting this remote part of what appears to be the remote part of southwest Europe during this time to a world of things that are going on over 3,000 kilometers away. It's an extraordinary story that the archaeology can reveal because then you've got to try to fit that into some kind of historical story. It's, it's extraordinary that these objects can give us those kinds of connections in the past. This idea of connectivity is one of the most important things of the project. It's that Byzantine world, it's the Eastern Roman Empire carrying on after the Romans had left Britain. This was the real sort of power centre of Europe. And we're trying to understand how these goods are travelling through the Mediterranean, past Gibraltar and up the Atlantic coast, past Spain and France and up to Britain and possibly up to Ireland. It's that whole sort of linkage we're trying to understand. Is it direct trade? Are ships coming from Turkey what is now Turkey, straight to Tintagel with their cargoes of amphorae with wine and oil and everything? Or is it what we'd call down-the-line trade? You know, we think it's the latter, actually. We think it's down-the-line do. trade. So. Where it's you get a mixture of things you, yeah, uh, you know, on ships. And, and then we're getting ships that are coming, say, from France or Spain. But we're not getting ships directly from the Eastern Mediterranean. That's the picture that right. the research is starting to open up. But it's not just important for Tintagel and Cornwall. It's important for the whole of the understanding of early medieval Europe. 
Absolutely. And it also shows that really, you know, uh, although we're here down in the far southwest, it always seems to be peripheral and marginal to the bigger stories. In fact, it shows that Tintagel was really kind of not not really on the edge of the world. It was actually probably the centre of the world at that time for many people. So I think that's an extraordinary thought, really, because mm. it shifts your whole perspective about how you write your grand narratives of history. Yes, these are all fantastic uh, conclusions and questions uh, to also be drawn <laughs> from the entire project. Can you tell us a bit more about how the data was analysed? You talked about radiocarbon dating, obviously, but are, are there any other techniques that people don't know about that you've used? Well, um, the radiocarbon dating is very important, and that has has been a huge part of the post-excavation programme. I've been working with colleagues in Historic England a huge number of dates, um, very accurate dates, over 60 dates have been funded and analysed. We're able to model those dates. And the key thing is, is that we're able to show that there are three main phases of things in terms of chronology going on on the Southern Terrace. There's a phase that's happening there in the 5th century, which is the middens and the early building that we found. There's something going on there in the 7th and 8th centuries, which is a huge addition to our knowledge because previously we'd always assumed that after the 5th and 6th centuries Tintagel wasn't really being actively settled and then we've got some dates which show that there's happening something happening there in the sort of the pre-Norman period so we're filling up a massive amount in terms of understanding about the the chronological history of Tintagel. So the dates are very, very important. We've also got, as we say, the petrographic analysis that Marie's been doing on the imported wares. And we've also done that with some of the early medieval pottery as well, where Imogen Wood and Henrietta Cornell have been working very, very closely together, looking at the types of pottery that appearing in the local landscape. There's not a huge amount of that material that we found, but it shows that local pots are actually coming to the island too, mainly made of clays which are locally sourced. But there are also pots that are coming from far away in Cornwall, down by the Lizard, which is over 50 kilometres away from Tintagel, because these pots are made of a particular type of clay called gabbro clays. So again, we've got um, not just things happening or things arriving in the wider hinterland, but beyond the wider hinterland arriving at Tintagel. So that's a key important thing. Yes, we've had some analysis of the glass that's been done, which I said, so we're able to look at um, the materials that make up these glass objects to show that. And we've also, well, the geophysical surveys were the first that have been done on the headland as well. So combined all these different techniques that we bring together, it helps us to construct a fairly detailed picture, not only of the objects, but the stories of those objects and how they fit into the overall story that's emerging. Yes, I was going to say, how how big is your picture now, would you say, in terms of percentage? How much of the story have you been able to glean from this research? I think the last major synthesis of Tintagel, in terms of archaeological knowledge was produced as a result of the work that was done in the 1990s. There's a sort of major monograph that came out in 2007, I think it was, and that gave us um, a handle on some of the various events that we've been talking about. But we really have now opened up another book in terms of looking at the sort of longevity of activity at Tintagel and the significance of that. And Mm. so we have to rewrite that book. And I think that's um, extraordinary just on the basis of 
the amount of material that we've managed to retrieve, even though, we, as I said earlier, we're just sampling a very, very rich site. It sounds as though you've very much written the next few chapters in the in the <laughs> few hundred years since the fifth century. You've, you've managed <laughs> yes, to dig through yes. the layers and, and drawn out quite a tantalising story. And I'm sure there's plenty more work to be done when the next generation of archaeologists and scientists uh, descend on Tintangel to do the next phase of work in the future. What questions does the project raise now for future historians, would you say, both of you? Oh, that's a that's a, a very it's Where a difficult we... question. I suppose we're still mm. analysing. You were talking about rewriting the chapters that we've got. We've got to digest those and start addressing the new questions. When the 1990s publication came out, what was it? Over 200 page book, a massive book. But this one, with all the scientific data that we've collected, is going to be even larger. We're actually going to publish it digitally online. I mean, it's quite technical, but there will be some reason. It'll be absolutely fascinating. So you'll be able to download it for free when, when it's all published next year in 2022. I think really at the moment we're just trying to refine those questions as to what kind of settlement it is. Have we got people living there all the time? Where is their food coming from? What's the environment like around the site? How does it connect to its region? How does it connect to the Atlantic trade and into the Mediterranean? And what's driving that trade? Is it a hunger of the elite for wealthy goods or is there something else going on? You know, is there a trade just going on anyway up the Atlantic coast? And Tintagel is just tapping into that. It's still all coming together and poor old Jackie is is, uh, (laughs) writing it all up because the amount of science in this is just incredible. You know, there's uh, there's all the collection of environmental samples we did on the site as well using techniques like flotation and uh, it's just an incredible amount of data so that's um, going to be your main project I guess this year Jackie. Yes well I mean you know I mean obviously I, I don't do all this on my own and I work with a big team of people who are far more expert than me at understanding the nuances of all the data and I'm I rely on working and collaborating with a large team of people. And we have been trying to do this throughout this last year in the best way as possible so that we can keep things moving in terms of trying to write up everything, really. Yes, I think we will be producing quite a substantial big book, but hopefully we can extract from that and produce a more condensed story which will highlight some of the gaps in our knowledge and some of the tantalising bits that are giving us more insights, as I said, to what's happening at Tintagel post the 5th and 6th century between the period that we've got this extraordinary character of things going on and the time seven or 800 years later, Earl Richard built his castle, because we've got those important areas to look at too. And before we go, I should actually mention that one of the other extraordinary finds was a slate with a handwritten inscriptions, which we found as part of the wall that we found on the sort of southern edge of the southern terrace. This is another insight really into sort of the extraordinary nature of the archaeology at Tintagel because we've got evidence for literacy, which we would expect to be part of the lifestyle and part of the world of the Western elite. This is a very, very extraordinary bit of slate on which there are seven lines of text. Some are in Latin, Britannic, and this finishes off with a Greek monogram. And Hmm. it's in a sort of what we call a cartouche. And it looks as though it's been written onto a slate with a steel or iron pencil or stylus in the same hand. And we've had our specialists, Professor Michelle Brown and Dr. Oliver Padell, 
help us try to unravel the significance of that. But it shows that we've got, again, another piece of evidence which shows the extraordinary story that is emerging from Tintagel at this time. And an international message as well, which I think uh, sums up this entire process, really. And can you tell us what it says? It's got two names. It's got... um, Budik and Tud. uh, (laughs) It's got Tito. It's Uh, got Yuri Duo. So Tito could be a Latin name. Yuri Duo could be of two men. Afili, of the son of. And then it's got Boo, Dick and Tu. The early medieval specialists who were working on the inscription and also the nature of the handwriting have suggested that uh, we're looking both at Latin plus the native language, both on this one inscription, which is quite extraordinary. I mean, it adds to this intriguing picture and um, it's the second piece of inscription, if you like, that's come from Tintagel during the 1990s on Site C. Chris Morris and his team found a slate with some Latin letters superimposed upon one another, which became known as the Artogni Stone. So um, mm. so again, that all adds to this extraordinary yeah. understanding, really, of who we're dealing with. People who are literate, obviously familiar with writing and uh, the practice of writing, but also bringing together different languages as well. So I think that's an incredible insight. Yes, it's a great example and an enigma to the international aspect of Tintagel. Thank you very much, both of you, for talking to us. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Yes, thank you. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll investigate the Lindisfarne Gospels and Lindisfarne Priory on Holy Island in Northumberland. Quite simply, they're one of the most magnificent books ever produced. These brightly coloured pages with intricate ornament would have seemed mesmerising, even miraculous. Thanks for listening. See you next time.